Hello, welcome to another episode of Best of the Left Podcast. Today we have clips from the Liberal Oasis radio show, Rachel Maddow, Mike Malloy, Randy Rhodes, and the Young Turks. Uh, today is the day that I've been arguing was the perfect opportunity for the Democrats to start ending the war. Today is the day that the Bush administration formally asked for another huge pile of money to throw on the bonfire that is the war in Iraq. I urge the Congress to approve the complete global war on terror request as quickly as possible and without excessive and counterproductive restrictions. Without excessive and counterproductive restrictions. Defense Secretary Bob Gates before the Senate Appropriations Committee today asking for another $42 billion to be added to what they have already asked for to fund the war in Iraq. The reason he's talking about counterproductive and unnecessary restrictions is because what we've learned so far from the Democrats in the Senate is that their big plan for trying to end the war is to maybe put some conditions on that funding. The last time the Congress put this Democratic-led Congress put conditions on the funding about the war, the president vetoed the bill containing both the funding and those restrictions, and then Congress just sent him the funding without the restrictions. So why we would start down that path again does, uh, is beyond me. In 2003, the year that we invaded Iraq, Congress appropriated $81 billion for the war. Uh, $81 billion in the first year. The next year, it went up to $94 billion. Year after that, $108 billion. Year after that, $122 billion. This year, war budget is $173 billion. And now today, after Bob Gates's request to the Senate today to add to the 08 request, the request for, for war spending for next year, nearly $190 billion. It has gone up every single year. This year, uh, the biggest by far, next year uh, dwarfs even this year. The Congress keeps saying, yes, 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 yes. Here's more money for the war. Take it all. Take all you need. Even though we might run to, you know, run for office on the basis of ending the war, we're happy to keep funding it. The Democrats are in control of Congress right now, and they could say no. They, they could say, actually, no. No further funding for the war. We're voting no on this. You've got enough money in the pipeline already to get the troops home. And we're happy to say yes to further funding for a withdrawal of our troops, if you don't think you can safely get them out of there without extra withdrawal funding. But money to stay? No. We are cutting you off. Bring the troops home. We said we'd end the war. We're going to end it. The Democrats can do that. They, could, they, could, they can do that starting today with this extra $42 billion that just got asked for today. And if they said no, a no cannot be vetoed. Saying no to something can't be vetoed. The president can only veto things that Congress passes. This would be something that Congress would refuse to pass. They could vote it down. And if need be, they could filibuster the funding. Yesterday on the show, Larry Korb from the Center for American Progress made a counterargument to me. He said, ah, yes, but the president could keep funding the war, even if Congress cut off the funds, using something called the Food and Forage Act. Yeah, they can, they can filibuster the funding, but in fact, what would happen then is, since you haven't forced the president to withdraw, you, you don't have anything in law that gets him to change course. But would he leave U.S. troops in Iraq without funding? Would he, no, would he be would that he, much of a madman? No, well, what he can do, there's another law here, it's called the Food and Forage Act, that allows him to, you know, to, to spend the money. The Food and Forage Act? Yes, well, this, uh, because basically what this says, let's say we went to war, Congress wasn't in session, or, heaven forbid, somebody destroyed the Capitol, and the Congress couldn't vote. 
there's a provision that allows the president, you know, when troops are in battle to spend the money. Wow. Wow. That was me on yesterday's show, getting schooled by Larry Korb. The Food and Forage Act. So, of course, as soon as I got off the air, what did I do? I spent the entire night until four in the morning reading about the Food and Forage Act. Because that's what I'm like. Turns out um, that the Food and Forage Act actually isn't a problem for my plan. It can't be used to keep funding combat operations. The Food and Forage Act can only be used for for food and transportation and clothing and, and stuff like that for the troops. It could not, after all, be used by the president to perpetuate the war if Congress killed the funding for the war. Cutting off the funding for the war is actually the only way the Democrats have to end it. And it is time for the Democrats to end the war. It could start today with a big N.O. to this latest funding request uh, that the Senate Appropriations Committee this afternoon received from Bob Gates. in his crazy mind that's never been apparently exposed to any african americans he thinks he's trying to educate white people that no it turns out black people are okay He's having a conversation about how he went to this restaurant called Sylvia's in Harlem with Al Sharpton. And the things he says blows me away. I mean, get a load of how much fun this is. Let's start with clip number one. Okay, Here's Bill O'Reilly on his radio program. Black people in this country understand that they've had a very, very tough go of it. And some of them can get past that, and some of them cannot. Hmm. I, th- I don't think there's a black American who hasn't had a personal insult that they've had to deal with because of the color of their skin. I don't think there's one in the country. So you got to accept that as being the truth. People deal with that stuff in a variety of ways. Some get bitter. Some say, you can do that. You call me that. I'm going to be more successful. Okay? Depends on a personality. So far, so, so good. It's there. It's there. And I think it's getting better. I think black Americans are starting to think more and more for themselves. Oh, and they're getting away from the Sharptons and the Jacksons and the and the people trying to lead them into a race-based culture. They, you know, trying to figure it out. Look, I can make it. If I work hard, get educated, I can make it. You know, I was up in uh, Harlem a few weeks ago, and I actually had dinner with uh, Al Sharpton, who is a very, very interesting guy. And he comes on a factor a lot. And then I treated him to dinner um, because he's made himself available to us, and I felt that I wanted to take him up there. And we went to Sylvia's, a very famous restaurant in Harlem. I had a great time, and uh, all the people up there tremendously respectful. They all watched the factor. Uh, you know, in Sharp that I walked in, it was like big commotion and everything, but everybody was very nice. And I couldn't get over the fact that there was no difference between Sylvia's restaurant and any other restaurant in New York City. I mean, it was a, it was exactly the same, even though it's no. run by blacks, <laughs> primarily uh, black patronship. It was the same, and that's really, really what the society is all about now here in the USA. There's no difference. There's no difference. 
You know, we there may be a cultural entertainment. People may gravitate toward different cultural entertainment. But you get down to Little Italy, and you're going to have that. And nothing to do with the uh, color of anybody's skin. Uh, I just love this. Okay. In his mind, he's trying to do the right thing. That's what I think. Okay. But he is just shocked that it turns out if you go to a black restaurant, it's like other restaurants. No. Really? Wow, I didn't see that coming. It's turns, and he says, look, in this country, it's turned out that but black people and white people are in Little Italy and Harlem. It's all the same. This comes as like a big surprise, and he wants to let his audience know. Out of the goodness of his heart, he's trying to let them know. He says, you know, uh, I couldn't get over this fact. It's such a big surprise to him that he couldn't get over it. <laughs> okay. And I love two other things in it, and then we'll bring JR into this discussion. Uh, they, I walked into Sylvia's, and they all watched the factor there. No, they don't, dude. They know who you are. Doesn't mean they watch your show, okay? And then, uh, and then my other favorite part was right in the beginning where he's like, "Well, now some black uh, Americans are beginning to think for themselves." Oh, really? Before no Amer blacks in America thought for themselves, but now that some of them agree with Bill O'Reilly, they're beginning to think for themselves. Jared, get a load of this guy. I mean, what do you think? People don't realize that they're. I'm, uh, I don't know how far it goes, but I, we're, we'll throw it out there. They're racist. They don't realize what that there's differences in people, and that uh, no, just because you don't know how people live doesn't mean that they're aliens. And so he's showing that by saying he's, he's acting like he's like you said he's trying to educate people, and he's showing his ignorance constantly. Yeah. No. What's amazing is, my God, this man knows no black people. I mean, he's never been to a black restaurant in his life. He's never hung out with black people in his life, and everything is like a new to him. Like, like he just plopped on it, it, on planet Earth and landed in America, and he's like, "Look at this white and black people interacting," and it turns out they're just like us. And the blacks were well dressed. No. Uh, and she came out. Uh, Nita Baker came out and said, and said, "Look." This is a show uh, for the family. We're not going to have any profanity here. We're not going to do any uh, rapping here. Uh, the band was uh, excellent, but they were dressed in tuxedos. And, you know, this is what um, white America doesn't know, um, particularly people who don't have a lot of interaction with black Americans. They think that the culture is dominated by Twista, Ludacris, and Snoop Dogg. Uh, my favorite part of all of this is not what a lot of people are focusing on. It said he goes to an Anita Baker concert, and he's surprised that rap doesn't break out. But why would it? That's not the music she does. It's like going to an opera and being like, you know, Barry Manilow didn't come out and sing. Yeah, because you went to an opera, and that's not the, that's not what they sing there. And then that's that's where he qual that's where he, he in the back door qualifies that he didn't say. I was surprised. I mean, I, uh, Anita Baker came out and she didn't rap. He said she came out and said, "There's going to be no rapping here. There's going to be we're not going to be walking around with our pants around our ass." Why would she come out and say that? What's, what's the point of her coming out saying that? She's there to perform. She knows who bought those tickets for her show. <laughs> yeah, I don't think you're getting it, man. It turns out people there were well dressed. Did you know there was well dressed African Americans? Man, that was news to me. It's a good thing some people listen. It's a good thing everybody listens to the Factor. Otherwise, they wouldn't have gotten that news.
Actually, perhaps the most pivotal week I've seen in the presidential campaign to date. This may have been the week where either Hillary Clinton pulls away and runs away with the whole thing, or the week where she peaks and goes downhill. Why is that? Because on Sunday, she was asked on ABC by George Stephanopoulos if she would take a pledge to remove all U.S. troops combat or non-combat, by the end of her first term, January 2013. Let's hear that. Can you pledge that all U.S. troops will be home over the course of your first term as president? You know, I'm not going to get into hypotheticals and make pledges because I don't know what I'm going to inherit, George. Now, that's huge because there's actually... Now, she is pulling away in the poll. She's about 20 points ahead of everybody else right now. She has effectively answered the concern that she can't win, at least in people's perception. You know, she has been able to be poised and polished. She doesn't get flustered. She doesn't make mistakes. You can't hold up any poll data that says she would automatically lose to a Republican candidate. Because she has allayed those concerns, she has started to pull away. But there's other polling that shows that most Democratic voters believe she would get all troops out in nine months once she was in office. So if they learned that that is not her view, that could upend the race. And then this week on MSNBC, there was a presidential debate hosted by Tim Russert, and he asked all the candidates, would you take that very pledge? Here's how he put it to Barack Obama. Will you pledge that by January 2013, the end of your first term, more than five years from now, there will be no U.S. troops in Iraq? I think it's hard to project four years from now, and I think it would be irresponsible. We don't know what contingency will be out there. So he, ref- he opted not to make a distinction between himself and Senator Clinton on that point. And the same question was pointed put at uh, John Edwards. Senator Edwards, will you commit that at the end of your first term in 2013, all U.S. troops will be out of Iraq? Uh, I, I cannot make that commitment. I- so all three of the leading Democratic presidential candidates not only would not take the pledge that they could not get all troops out by January 2013, five and a half years from now, Um, which I think is troubling on a substantive level. But on a political level, they chose not to make that distinction between themselves and Senator Clinton, which in my mind, I can't see how you dislodge her from the front runner's perch unless you make that argument. It is not obvious to me what other opening you have. Now, that does not mean that no candidate this week made that distinction. In fact, in the debate, Bill Richardson did. He said he would not only get troops out by January 2013, but he'd get them out within six months of uh, being in office, all troops. Chris Dodd took the pledge, and Dennis Kucinich took that pledge. So there are options here. There are choices that people have, but I have to say there are other weaknesses in the Richardson, Dodd, and Kucinich campaigns, which doesn't make it obvious to me if they can use that issue to catapult into the first tier. So that's where the question is right now. Are they able to do that and knock Hillary Clinton off of the frontrunner's perch? Or if they can't, I don't see how Edwards and Obama can take her down without taking that position. So that is, to me, the key issue to watch for going forward in this presidential campaign.
Hey guys, if you're enjoying this episode of Best of Left, please share it with a friend. Just go to our website and click on the share this link in the show notes for the episode that you want to share. If you just want to tell someone about our podcast in general, click on the Tell Your Friends About Us link in the sidebar of our website. Thanks for spreading the love, and now back to the show. Okay, Martin. Martin uh, wants to know. Martin in Purdue at Purdue. Uh, Martin, I've I've, I've kind of answered this several times. So I'll be happy to do it again. Uh, Martin writes, Mike. What do you think of Ron Paul? Not exactly your ideological cup of tea, I'll bet. But he's the only candidate of either party except Kucinich, who wants a non-interventionist foreign policy. Could you give him some on-air kudos? Martin, uh, actually, no, Martin, I can't because, uh, you know, I've known of Ron Paul since the mid 80s, 20 years. Well, not 20 years. Yeah, 20 years. Um, when I was just starting uh, in radio, I think Ron Paul was just kind of making a blip uh, as as a political person. And then, of course, he ran for president. When was it in 92? Was he a candidate in 92 or was it 86? I mean, 88. I'm not sure. But he ran for president on the uh, Libertarian Party uh, ticket. Ron Paul is not a Republican. He he is a Libertarian. He switched to, j- j- just like uh, Michael um, uh, Bloomberg, the mayor of, uh, of New York, is not a Republican either. He's, he's a Democrat. Always has been. Uh, and Bloomberg did the same thing Ron Paul did. Switched parties so he could get elected. Ron Paul left the Libertarian Party in uh, form, if not in fact, so he could get elected as a Republican. Since he is a right-wing libertarian, uh, Martin, that means, among other things, that he believes the government has no business doing anything except defending the country if we are invaded. That's about the only thing I think that right-wing libertarians believe in. No Food and Drug Administration. No uh, Security and Exchange Commission. I mean, I can I can go on all night and tell you the things that libertarians say should not be in existence. Uh, no Medicare, no Social Security, no Medicaid, nothing. So the fact that Ron Paul comes out against... If I want an anti-war candidate, which I do, it is Dennis Kucinich, because Dennis Kucinich is not a nutball. Ron Paul is crazy. He's absolutely any person who says that in the year 2007, with 300 million people in this country, the economy about to collapse, um, all sorts of madness uh, afoot in the society, any candidate who looks at it and says, well, um, I'll tell you the way to solve that, uh, get the government out of everything. <laughs> Every, bridges and dams? Ah, forget about it. Uh, minerals, uh, Department of Agriculture, get out of here. Get everything. Pull everything out. Nothing. Everybody's on their own. Ron Paul makes anarchists look like puppies. So, Martin, I hope that answers your question. And anyone else who uh, who uh, is inclined to write to me about Ron, Ron Paul, I mean, go ahead. It's okay. But uh, my answer about Ron Paul is... Uh, has not changed in 20 years. It just hasn't. He's he's a nut 
he's a nutcase. Now, as far as a non-interventionist U.S. foreign policy, that's impossible. Nobody can have a non that, that sounds like Pat Buchanan. Nobody can have, uh, unless you're talking about uh, non-interventionist where it concerns no war. Now, I can get behind that. But non-interventionist, what does that mean? How does Ron Paul mean it? Um, you need to uh, to check out what libertarians have been talking about for a long time. That means no treaties, no international agreements, no nothing. A libertarian point of view is there are no there are no the, the government is six people who get together and say how's the army? Oh, it's fine. Okay, Congress is adjourned. Um, interventionist has has a lot of meanings i i i think martin um interventionists we are uh intervening into the area of uh, human rights when we when we agree to the geneva conventions on on how we conduct ourselves when we go, go around the planet murdering people uh under the guise of war so interventionists what wh what is ron paul you need to check that out because ron paul's basic uh platform is the basic platform of the libertarian party which is don't get involved in nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. No thanks. show is produced with the help of the members of the best of the left community you too can be a part of the show and we would love your help you can submit information about great clips you've heard volunteer to help edit these clips for the show or actually become an occasional guest producer for more information please visit the community at bestoftheleftpodcast.com Positions of our candidates on the war. This might shock and surprise you people to learn that these are the positions held by our field of candidates who we seem to be delighted with. Uh, I wasn't so delighted with these answers, and I think you ought to know what they are. So let's start with uh, Barack Obama's answer to uh, if you were president, would you get the troops out of Iraq? Will you pledge that by January 2013, the end of your first term, more than five years from now, there will be no U.S. troops in Iraq. Five years. I think it's hard to project four years from now, and I think it would be irresponsible. We don't know what contingency will be out there. What I can promise is that if there are still troops in Iraq when I take office, which it appears there may be unless we can get some of our Republican colleagues to change their mind and cut off funding without a timetable, uh, if, if, if there's no timetable, then I will drastically reduce our presence there to the mission of protecting our embassy, our embassy, protecting our civilians, and making sure that we're carrying out counterterrorism activities there. That would be incorrect, Barack. Oprah, call him. Oprah, he's yours. I'll be in charge of Al. You take Barack. Here's Hillary. You have said that you will not pledge to have all troops out by the end of your first term. 2013. Why not? Well, Tim, it is my goal to have all troops out by 
the end of my first term. Uh, but I agree with Barack. It is very difficult to know what we're going to be inheriting. You know, we do not know, walking into the White House in January 2009, what we're going to find. What is the state of planning for withdrawal? That's why last spring I began pressing the Pentagon to be very clear about whether or not they were planning to bring our troops out. And what I found was that they weren't doing the kind of planning that is necessary, and we've been pushing them very hard to do so. Okay, she's right about pressing them for a withdrawal exit strategy, for a withdrawal plan, and they, they haven't even gotten to you know, mapping one out. Partial credit there. But 2013, Hillary! Here's John Edwards. Senator Edwards, will you commit that at the end of your first term in 2013, all U.S. troops will be out of Iraq? I, I, I cannot make that commitment. I, well, I can tell you what I would do as president. If I, when I'm sworn into office come January of 2009, if there are, in fact, as General Petraeus uh, suggests, 100,000 American troops on the ground in Iraq, I will immediately draw down 40 to 50,000 troops. Ooh, that's and good. over the course of the next several months, continue to bring our combat troops out of Iraq until all of our combat troops are, in fact, out of Iraq. I think the problem is, and it's what you've just heard discussed, is we will maintain an embassy in Baghdad. That embassy has to be protected. Uh, we will probably have humanitarian workers in Iraq. Those humanitarian workers have to be protected. I think somewhere in the neighborhood of a brigade of troops will be necessary uh, to accomplish that, 3,500 to 5,000 troops. All right. We're talking five years out. He's got, a, he's got his eye on the embassy, all right? And, of course, humanitarian workers. Uh, the U.N. could do that. So, but on the number 3,500 to 5,000, there are 10,000 in Bosnia or more. I think there might be 20,000. I have to check. Uh, we'll say, okay. All right, not bad. Here's Bill Richardson of New Mexico. Governor Richardson, you have said that you will bring home all troops within a year. You've heard yeah. your three other opponents say they can't do it. In four years, how can you do it in one year? Well, I have a fundamental difference with, with Senator Obama, Senator Edwards, and Senator Clinton. Here's my position. Their position basically is changing the mission. My position in bringing all troops out of Iraq is to end the war. The American people want us to end this war. Our kids are dying the bloodiest last three months. And my position is this, that you cannot start the reconciliation of Iraq, a political settlement, an all-Muslim peacekeeping force to deal with security and boundaries and possibly this issue of a separation, which is a plan that I do believe makes sense, until we get all our troops out because they have become targets. And I also disagree with Senator Clinton. I don't believe the Congress has done enough to end this war. Okay. I like the sound of that, but he has no chance. <laughs> All right, let's try for Chris Dodd. Eric, watch me because I know this is a really long uh, cut, and so we're not going to let the whole thing play because Dodd he was very passionate about this, and he went on for about two minutes, and that's about what I have left here, and I'd like to do Dodd and Biden, so, and then Kucinich, if we can squeeze it in. So here's, here's Chris Dodd of Connecticut. Senator Dodd, you've heard this discussion. Where do you come down? Well, Tim, I, the question is not just how do you bring the troops out, but why are we there? As President of the United States, your first responsibility is to guarantee the safety and security of the American people. Right. And so the question you must ask yourself as President, is the continuation of our military presence enhancing that goal? I happen to believe very strongly 
uh, that this policy of ours, military involvement in Iraq, is counterproductive. We're less safe, less secure, more vulnerable, and more isolated today as a result of the policy. Okay. Fundamental understanding. Uh, and, of course, my favorite senator of all, the senator from Delaware, Joe Biden. Senator Biden, would you get it done? Tim, we're begging the question here. Everyone says there's no political, so there's no military solution, only a political solution. We offered a political solution today, and it got 75 votes. And it said it rejected fundamentally the president's position that there's a possibility of establishing a strong central government in Iraq and said we're going to have a federal system, bring in the rest of the world to support establishing a federal system. That will end the civil war. That will allow us to bring our troops home. That is the thing that will allow us to come home without leaving chaos behind. Now, here's the deal. The deal is that to say that you are going to bring all troops home, from the region. I assume that's what you mean. Not from just, Iraq. Just from Iraq. You're going to bring all troops home from Iraq. If, in fact, there is no political solution by the time I am president, then I would bring them out because all they are is fodder. But, but, but. if you go along with the Biden plan that got 75 votes today, yeah, non and you have a stable Iraq, right. like we have in Bosnia, Right. We've had 20,000 Western troops in Bosnia for 10 years. Not one has been killed. Not one. The genocide has ended. So it would depend on the circumstances when I became president. Okay. I can, yes, we can go there. Just don't know if I want a president that, that says, you know, that talk, like, like, you know, uh, you know what I mean? You, 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 you get, get a grip, man. That's how Biden talks. Like, get a grip, man. Here's the deal. I like you. Here's the deal. You're the real thing. You know that kind of I don't know. But that is a good answer. That's a good answer. It shows he's working on it as a senator. Shows leadership. Shows a grip on the foreign policy situation. Shows a grip on what's going on on the ground. Uh, shows understanding of uh, uh, the fact that it is in the Iraq Constitution that they can govern themselves the way we do with a loose a loose federation of states like that's what we have we don't have a strong central government we have a central government and then we have fifty state governments with governors and that's what he's proposing and that is within the iraqi constitution for them to do and what he's saying is that he would actually move in a political fashion to get the local elections and the state elections going which this president has failed to do that is part of the political solution uh, and then, of course, there was Dennis Kucinich, who has the right answer. Congressman Kucinich, please. I, as the only one on this stage who actually voted against the war right. and voted 100 percent of the time against funding the war, I yes. have a rather unique perspective. Yes, you do. I've introduced legislation, H.R. 1234, which is the plan to end the Iraq war. To me, it is fairly astonishing to have Democrats who took back the power of the House and the Senate in 2006 to stand on this stage and tell the American people that this war will continue to 2013 and perhaps past that. I want everyone to know, I want the American people to know that I've been on this from the beginning and I know that we can get out of there three months after I take office or after the new president takes office if one is determined to do that. And I want to make it clear 
that the plan includes ending the occupation, closing the bases, bringing the troops home, setting in motion a program of reconciliation, not partition, between the Iraqs or between the Sunnis, the Shiites, and the Kurds, having an honest reconstruction program, having a program of reparations, and giving the people of Iraq full control over their oil, which currently most of the people on this stage have said should be privatized in one way, shape, or form. That would be the right answer. That is the correct answer. Echoes and silence, patience and grace. All of these moments I'll never Washington Post ABC News poll out today. Uh, 70% of the country, it turns out, wants the funding cut off for the war. New poll numbers suggest the American public wants to stop shelling out big bucks for the Iraq war. The latest Washington Post poll shows less than a third of Americans support the president's request for $190 billion, with a B, dollars to fund the war in Iraq and Afghanistan. 67% of the people who responded say that dollar amount should be scaled back, and 3% say Congress should stop funding the war altogether. Okay. It is 27% of the country that say they want Bush's war funding request funded in full. 27%. Uh, 3% of the country say they don't know, and the rest of the country... If you add it all together, 70% wants the funding cut, either some of it cut, most of it cut, or all of it cut. Rachel, you know as well as I they're not going to do that. Why is it the common political wisdom, not only on the right, but among the political pundit class, among the, the, the media analysts who get to define what counts as a serious idea in politics, why is it the common political wisdom, even among Democrats, even among people opposed to the war, why is it the common political wisdom that there's no way that Congress could cut off funding for the war? Rachel, you know as well as I they're not going to do that. If 70% of the country is in favor of something, if 70% of the country is in favor of cutting the funding for the war, why is it considered such a radical thing to propose? Why is it considered politically untenable to do what 70% of the country wants to be done? The Washington Post poll says if you look at the respondents who say that they want the funding and the funding for the war cut, nine, in, 9 out of 10 Democrats want the funding for the war cut. Seven in ten independents want the funding for the war cut. And 46% of Republicans want funding for the war cut. Rachel, you know as well as I they're not going to do that. How does it become political received wisdom that something is politically impossible when all evidence points to the contrary? 
The American people are in favor of a troop withdrawal. The American people are in favor of a timeline for telling us when the last troop is going to leave Iraq. The American people are in favor of cutting off funding for the war, if that's the way to end it. In a representative democracy where we elect people to enact policies that the people support, a person might think that the politically advantageous thing to do right now would be to do what 70% of the country wants, which is to cut funding for the war. The Democrats in Congress actually do have an opportunity to end the war, maybe even before Bush is out of office, but it requires cutting off funding, which is something that's incredibly politically hard to do, but totally possible. Right. And if all of the leading contenders said, Rachel, yeah, we got to end the war right now, then that would they're create... Pat, final ten seconds. Rachel, you know as well as I they're not going to do that. I hear you, Pat Buchanan. I hear you. I know that the common wisdom is that cutting off the funding for the war is impossible. I just also know alongside that... That's insane. True to form, though. Last night, the United States Senate voted to authorize another $190 billion of funding for the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. Does any senator in the chamber still wish to cast their vote? If not, uh, the yeas are 92, the nays are 3, and the bill as amended is passed. 92 to 3. See why I have circles under my eyes. 92 to 3. The only senators who voted against the defense authorization bill with $190 billion worth of war funding, uh, the three no's were Robert Byrd, Russ Feingold, and Tom Coburn. Tom Coburn is, of course, best known for advocating the death penalty for any doctor who performs an abortion and also well known for warning against the threat of lesbianism in girls' bathrooms in Oklahoma junior high schools. But Tom Coburn, for some reason, stood with Feingold and Robert Byrd today as the only no votes on the war funding in the Senate. There is a silver lining here in the Senate, um, and it's important. Appreciating the silver lining, unfortunately, requires understanding the difference between two long, jargony words that both begin with the letter A. Authorization versus appropriation. I know this is as riveting as the Commerce Clause, but if you are mad at the Senate for approving this funding, it's worth listening to this so you can know what's worth being mad at and and what's not when the congress appropriates money that means it actually moves money from one account to another appropriating money is actually spending spending the money that is not what has happened yet before they actually spend the money they authorize it they say it's okay to spend money up to x level but that they just authorize the spending authorization happens first it's not the same as actually spending the money all the senate has done is that first step authorizing. And Harry Reid made noises today about actually having a fight about funding the war uh, when it's time for the next step, when it's time for the actual appropriation. I know it's boring to talk about authorization versus appropriation, but knowing that those are two different things means you know that the whole project of stopping the war by cutting off the funding is not over, not a done deal. Still more time to fight for that in the Senate. was on television today I, I i couldn't pass it up i had to see what his speechwriters handed him to read 
And uh, now, uh, what they gave him, this is a guy who, uh, as Robert Perry writes at consortiumnews.com, this is a guy who asserts his unlimited personal authority to kill, kidnap, torture, spy on anyone, anywhere in the world. Right? Uh, there, There are no habeas corpus protections. There are no protections. No way. This is a guy who set up secret detention camps. This is a guy who, whose uh, former advisors and former uh, Justice Department uh, had recommended torture and legalized it. This is a lying, sneaky bastard, George Bush, who has zero respect for human rights. And what does he do? He gets in front of the United Nations and uh, gives his speech by hailing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Put together by members of the United Nations. It's astonishing. It's astonishing. And he stands there and does this without a hint of embarrassment or, or, or an awareness of the irony of what he's saying. Or, or the fact that what he is saying is not only insulting and degrading and embarrassing to the American public, but also casts him as a moron, an idiot, who the rest of the world understands what, uh, what the United States does on Bush's watch. They understand that we torture, that we deny human rights, we spit on human rights. Human rights don't exist. We, the, the rest of the world understands when Bush says, oh, well, $20 billion for AIDS. He doesn't mean it. Where's the money? Oh, we're going to shift this. We're going to we're going to take a little from A and a little from B and put it over here in C. It doesn't mean new money, new appropriation. Bush is no more compassionate about uh, people who are sick or hurting or, or or needing shelter or clothing or food than the man in the moon. One word, Katrina. He's a liar. He's a thug. He's a punk. And there he stands today, hailing the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Oh, my God. Now, he, he said, and I'm quoting, Achieving the promise of the Declaration requires confronting long-term threats. It also requires answering the immediate, the immediate needs of today, including destruction of terrorist networks and, quote, bringing to justice their operatives, end quote. But... Bush's vision of, of his divine right to to kill whomever he judges to be a dangerous enemy flies in the face of the actual Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Um, whoever wrote this for Bush knows that there's the, very few of us, if any of us, who actually know what the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is when it, was, when it was passed by the General Assembly, what it stands for, what it means, oh, we have a vague idea, but, and, and, and the, the writers of this asinine speech also understand that the American news media is so corrupted, they won't, they won't even bother to check what Bush says against the, 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 the parameters laid out in this Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So Robert Perry did it for us. Among its 30 proclaimed rights are these. Everyone has the right to life, liberty, and security of person. Security of person. Liberty. Okay. No one shall be subjected to torture or to cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment or punishment. Ooh. Um, 
gosh, that that sounds kind of weird. Uh, Abu Ghraib, Guantanamo, Diego Garcia, all the little torture uh, gulags and caves and camps the Bushes uh, has, has set up. Everyone has the right to recognition everywhere as a person before the law. What? A person before the law? That means if you arrest me, you have to produce evidence as to why you've arrested me. You have to do it in open court. You have to say, this is why you're in chains. Bush doesn't do that. No one, here's another one, no one shall be subjected to arbitrary arrest, detention, or exile. Oh, Jesus. The next one, everyone is entitled to, or entitled in full equality to a fair and public hearing by an independent and impartial tribunal, like the U.S. military, in the determination of his rights and obligations and of any criminal charges against him. Here's another one. Everyone charged with a penal offense has the right to be presumed innocent until proved guilty according to law in a public trial at which he has had all the necessary uh, guarantees for his defense. Wow. No one shall be subjected to arbitrary interference with his privacy, family, home, or correspondence. Think about the FISA law. Think about the violation of the FISA law. Nor to attacks upon his honor and reputation. Everyone has the right to the protection of the law against such interference or attacks. Wow. Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression, unless you attend a Bush rally. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information or ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers. Now, this is what Bush said today is the foundation for the rule of law. He hailed the Universal Declaration of uh, Human Rights. This son of a bitch violates every single tenet of the human Declaration, Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Every single one. And yet, his speechwriters sent him out there today to make this kind of a speech in front of the rest of the world. Astonishing.